Good morning again. Well, we are in the middle of a series that is called Not in the Bible. And we are talking about different phrases that people think are in Scripture, but actually are not there. And so, so far we've talked about God will not give you more than you can handle. We've talked about God, what was the other one? God helps those who help themselves. That's what we talked about last week. And I have another one for you this week, but before we get to that, two weeks ago we played a game called Old Testament, New Testament, or Not in the Bible. We didn't play it last week, and I got into some trouble with some various people about that, so I'm, I'm bringing it back. We're going to play another round of this game. If you weren't here, here's how it works. I'm going to give you something. Last time it was a quote. This time it's going to be a name. And then you have to tell me if you think that that name is from the Old Testament, the New Testament, or not in the Bible. Got it? Okay, here we go. Here's the first one. Ichabod. I'm hearing lots of not. Let's see if you're right. Old Testament. This is a child whose birth is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The name means... The glory has left Israel. Uh, so it's a really uplifting name for this poor child who was named this. So there, that's Ichabod. Let's go to the next one. Gomer. Old Testament, New Testament, not in the Bible. All right, let's see. Old Testament. There are actually two Gomers in the Old Testament, and one is a woman. Uh, and, and she is the wife of Hosea, the prophet, and she's somebody who's known for a lot of indiscretions. Perhaps the reason she was so troubled is that her parents named her Gomer. <laughs> Next one, Oprah. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, okay, let's, let's see, let's see. Not in the Bible, but Oprah was actually named for a biblical character named Orpah, but somewhere along the way, the P and the R got mixed up. And Orpah is in the book of Ruth. But Oprah, that name is not in the Bible. Next one, Dorcas. What do you think? You guys are afraid to even say anything. <laughs> you don't want to be... Okay, New Testament. I, of course I wouldn't have made that one up, right? Uh, Dorcas was a very faithful woman. This is her Greek name. Her Aramaic name was Tabitha, and she's a woman who was raised from the dead by Peter in Acts chapter 9. If you are inspired by her story, I beg of you, name, her, name your child after her Aramaic name and not her Greek name. You don't want somebody named Dorcas in your family. Here's another name I don't recommend. Dodo. What do you think? Nobody wants to even say it. We'll just put it up there. Old Testament. There are two dodos in the Old Testament, and they both come to us in 1 Chronicles 11. One was a captain for David, and one was a member of David's mighty men. And finally here, Gaga. <laughs> yeah. I love a bold answer, although it's wrong. Not in the Bible. That, that one is not in the Bible. Okay, now that we've played our game, are you ready for today's phrase that is not in the Bible? Here it is. Faith in God will make life easier. The Bible does not say that. 
This is not news to those of you who've been following Christ for a long time. But for those who are new to this whole church thing, I want to share this with you today because I don't want to give you a false impression and I don't want to mislead you at all. Coming to faith in Christ does not necessarily make life easier, but it is still worth it. And we're going to talk about that today. In order to start, let us look at a passage in Scripture where Jesus actually used the word easy when he was talking about following him. So we're going to look at this passage and see what it actually does mean, and then we can kind of move on from there. So here is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. It says this, Come to me, these are the words of Christ, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. And to understand this word for us today and this whole thing about yoke is easy. We need to understand what Jesus means when he says yoke. What do you think of when you hear the word yoke? <laughs> That's an egg yoke, Y-O-L-K. Jesus is talking about a different kind of yoke, a Y-O-K-E, which might bring this picture to mind for you. Here, there you go. Yeah, now, this is an animal yoke. This, what this does is it yokes two animals together so that they can pull a cart or a plow. And together, this evenly distributes the work, and these two animals are able to do more together than they ever possibly could alone. Now, there's several places in the Bible that uses an animal yoke as, a, as an analogy for spiritual truths. For instance, there's a place in Philippians 4 that talks about Christians being yoke fellow. There's another passage in 2 Corinthians 6 that warns against being unequally yoked with someone who doesn't share your faith convictions. But in this passage, Jesus is not actually talking about an animal yoke. He's talking about a human yoke. Now, a human yoke is worn by one person to help distribute weight evenly across the shoulders. And this was a very common image that was used in the Old Testament. Sometimes it was used to refer to people who were just carrying really heavy burdens on their backs. Sometimes Jews spoke of this in a more positive way to, to speak of carrying the yoke of God's commandments and, and to, to be obedient to God and to carry his word and his teaching upon them. Additionally, those who followed rabbis in the first century were said to take on the yoke of their rabbi. And by this, it meant that they took on the teaching of that rabbi willfully and said, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to become like you. So as a first century rabbi, Jesus was using an image that was very common and very understood in his day. And this teaching about an easy yoke and a light burden was in direct contrast to the yoke of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were basically the religious police of this day, and they had a bunch of legalistic rules that they just buried and they just put on people and created these huge burdens in their life. In contrast, Jesus' yoke was one that focused on just two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor 
as yourself. Whereas the legalism of the Pharisees created weariness, Jesus says that following him and following these commands bring rest for the soul. And it's this rest that comes to the deepest inner parts of our lives. In other words, as John Ortberg says, easy does not come from the outside. It comes from the inside. Easy doesn't describe my problems. It describes the strength from, behind my, from beyond myself with which I can carry my problems. So Jesus doesn't promise that our circumstances will be easy. What he promises that his, his teaching won't be like the legalistic burdens of the Pharisees. Following Christ is not always easy. And when you just look at the, the context of this passage, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that that's the case. In the previous chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talks about the persecution that's going to come upon his disciples. He also talks about how there will be divisions in households on account of him. That is not easy. An easy yoke doesn't mean a life will be free of difficulty and struggle. In fact, the opposite can be true. Sometimes when somebody decides, I'm going to follow Christ with my life, life doesn't become easier. It becomes harder because temptations are intensified. Opposition is stronger. Attacks on their character is more pronounced. So why in the world would I want to follow Christ if it doesn't make my circumstances in my life easier? One reason. Easier does not mean better. I want you to think for a minute about one or two people who have done something great in our world, whether it's a leader or a humanitarian or some humble servant. I'm willing to bet that the person or people that you're thinking of did not have an easy go of it in life, that their task before them was not an easy one to accomplish. Easy does not mean better. Jesus doesn't want us to settle for easy. He wants us to do great things. He wants to do great things in us and through us. And he says that when we follow him, we will have that inner peace even when our circumstances are difficult. And a deep rest for our souls, of our inner life. And so realizing all of this can help us to combat some of the misconceptions that are out there about our faith. And so today I'd like to point out three such misconceptions. First, some preach that if you're faithful, God will bring you health and wealth. Have you ever had a dream that you were walking down a beach and as you were walking, you saw something shiny buried up in the sand ahead. And as you got closer to that thing that was buried in the sand, you realized that it was a lamp. And in this dream, did you imagine that there was a genie in that lamp waiting to grant you your three wishes? If you've ever had that dream, then you've probably thought about what you would wish for in those circumstances. Now, I found that a lot of people in those circumstances wish for basically three different types of things. One, something that brings financial security. Two, something that ensures the health of the individual or that individual's family. And three, something that ensures that that person will be loved and adored and accepted. 
Now, some believe that God acts like a cosmic genie, that God is there just waiting to poof, give us everything we want, to give us health and to give us wealth and to give us people who adore us and just want to wait and serve on us. And all we have to do to get all these benefits from God, this genie, is to follow the rules. Now, there are a lot of churches that have been built upon this idea, this prosperity gospel that says, if you hold up your end of the bargain, you never have to worry about being sick. Or they say, if you just make a large enough donation, then you will be rich beyond what you can possibly imagine in the near future. Or if you believe that you will find success, if you have positive energy and you visualize it, it will be yours. Deuteronomy 28 is the theme chapter for those who want to believe this to be true. Here's what the first six verses in Deuteronomy 28 say. If you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments that I am commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your livestock, both the increase of your cattle and the issue of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. That all sounds wonderful and awesome. But you have to take this passage completely out of context to believe that it it is universally applied to everyone in our world today. This was a deal that God made with Israel at a specific time and a specific place. And this direct correlation between obedience and material blessings is not universally taught throughout all of Scripture. In order to apply it, you have to forget a whole bunch of other stories. Even by the time of the prophets, you see people who were incredibly faithful to God, but did not get material wealth and possessions that you might expect. As Pastor Richard Dahlstrom says, the great prophet Jeremiah was faithful to God, but his ministry would be counted a resounding failure by any contemporary measures. He was locked in stocks, tossed in a pit, mocked and beaten. Many others in scripture had a very similar experience. So God doesn't promise us that following him is going to make us incredibly rich in this life or always have physical health. But what he does promise when we follow him is eternal rewards. And he promises spiritual health and those things cannot be taken away by circumstances. Here's a second misconception that people have. If your life is, isn't easy, it's because you're not faithful. This is the opposite of the health and wealth coin. This says, if life is not going so well for you, it's because life is a contract and you are not holding up your end of the bargain in this contract. Dahlstrom writes again, saying, we'd like to believe that the world works neatly with a tight causal structure, so that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That way we can judge the homeless person as lazy. 
and the sick person is careless with their body, and the person who loses their home is financially reckless. We'd like to think justice is that easy to understand. You know, there's an entire book in the Bible that's dedicated to this topic and and this issue. It's one that we briefly talked about two weeks ago, the first time we did Old Testament, New Testament, or not in the Bible. I read a quote. It said, my breath is offensive to my wife. And many of you didn't think that was in the Bible, but it actually is. It's in the book of Job. And Job is that book that I'm talking about. Job, the story begins in calamity. In one horrific day, Job loses his livestock, his servants, and his children. And then sometime later, his body is afflicted and he loses his health and he has painful sores all over his body. Job has these three friends who come to him in his sorrow. And at first it looks like they're going to come to comfort him. But instead, instead of comforting him and offering support, they would rather tell him why he is in the condition that he's in. They'd rather give him the theological reason for his suffering. And so they come and they say, you know what? The reason you're suffering is you've done something wrong. You've been more disobedient than we have. You, you just have not lived as God wants you to live. Great friends, right? But the reader of Job knows something that those friends do not know. See, it's revealed to us very early on that Job is suffering not because he's been unfaithful to God, but because he has been faithful to God. The first verse in the book says that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then the next two, the first two chapters in the book, they talk about how Job was so committed to integrity, even after all these bad things happened to him, and even after his wife told him to curse God and die. Yet he was committed to integrity. This shatters the idea that harm only comes as the direct result of some specific act of disobedience. And so I have to say something this morning. There are so many times that religious leaders will come out when something bad happens in our world from a natural disaster like what hit Nepal yesterday, and we need to keep them in our prayers, or even a terrorist attack. And they'll say the victims of those attacks are just getting the judgment for their moral failures. Well, these religious leaders are ignoring the book of Job and so much of the rest of Scripture. Sometimes bad things just happen because we live in a fallen and broken world. In such circumstances, Jesus doesn't tell us to sit at a distance and point fingers and judge. He tells us to get involved, to take action, to be agents of compassion and grace and healing in our world. So the second misconception is this. If your life isn't easy, it's because you're not faithful. Here's the third one. Make the right decision and things will go your way. Life is filled with decisions. And some of them are really simple. Like, what am I going to wear today? What am I going to eat for breakfast? How am I going to drive to work? Some of them are way bigger. Like, who am I going to marry? What job am I going to take? What school am I going to go to? And there's a certain line of thinking that says, if I, do, if I make the right choice, the one that God wants me to make on these big decisions, then things should get easier for me. 
And conversely, if things don't get easier when I make a bad choice, then that must mean that I made the wrong one. I want to go back to John Ortberg one more time in in his book, The The Places to Go, because he talks about this perspective in kind of a tongue-in-cheek manner, and I, I love how he does it. So let me read for you what he says. Choosing the right spouse means marriage should be effortless. Every morning we should wake up with sweeter breath and sweeter dispositions. Nothing about the other person should ever really bother us. She should make me feel great about myself, and when she's away from me, she should be looking forward to serving me. (laughs) Husbands note that all the wives just laughed. (laughs) If we have children, they should love God, get good grades, be above average in looks, IQ, social skills, and athletic ability. They should be completely and strongly independent while believing what we believe and doing what we approve. (laughs) If I've chosen the right vocational door, my job should bring me passion and fulfillment each day. My performance reviews should be straight A's. I should be my boss's favorite employee, while the people who report to me regularly write me notes asking how they can make me more successful. Co-workers who are difficult to get along with should quickly self-identify and transfer to some other organization, preferably in Alaska. (laughs) Then he concludes, if easy is my criterion for judging decisions, then every time I hit hard, I will be filled with doubt about God, myself, and my choice. But an open door does not promise an easy life. As I said earlier, sometimes when we make the right choice, it means that life is actually going to get harder. It won't get easier. We'll face more resistance, more opposition. And Scripture tells me that when that happens, I'm not alone. There are a whole bunch of people who made the right choice and faced hard things. We've talked a lot about the Apostle Paul in recent weeks, and let me just say again, Paul was somebody who made some pretty bad choices early on in his life. But once he met Christ on the road to Damascus, his life changed, and he started making some really good choices. And what did those choices lead him to? He was beaten with rods. People tried to execute him with stones. He was shipwrecked. He went without food and sleep and shelter. He was imprisoned. His life was not easy. But you know what? It was meaningful. He got to take the good news. He got to participate in amazing stuff, taking the good news all throughout the Roman world. And I know he was filled with joy at the end of his life when he looked back at all the decisions he had made and the hardships he'd been through and the great stuff he'd been able to be a part of. So let me conclude with this. When we follow Christ, life won't necessarily get easier. But easy doesn't mean better. Christ doesn't want us to settle for easy. He wants to give us the better life. One that's characterized by peace in the middle of hard times. Perspective when things aren't going our way. And purpose even in the midst of a storm. So I encourage you today and every day, don't settle for easy. 
Choose the better life that Christ has in store for you. Let us pray. Lord, it's not easy to preach this kind of message. I'd like to be able to say that if we believe in you, everything will get peachy. Everything will be happy and we'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Lord, we acknowledge today that there will be a day when those things do happen. That a day is coming when we will enter eternity with you and we will have unspeakable joy. We'll have all of our needs met and we will know love like we have never known before. But until that day, Lord, we acknowledge that we live in a broken world, a world where bad things happen. And so, Lord, in this world, we commit today not to settle for easy but to settle, not settle, but to go after better in our lives. So Lord, give us the strength because we cannot do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit alive in us. Empower us to live the better life that you're calling each and every one of us to. In his name, amen. <laughs>